where the show got less interesting is when they started trying to tell the story of the family of Ichabod Crane. Yeah, nobody cared. We didn't care. What's up, everybody? I'm Karma, a.k.a. The Blurred Girl. And welcome to the last Blurred Girl podcast of 2018. Now, originally, I was going to go over my favorite movies of the year, but we all know that it's Black Panther, so... That just seemed kind of redundant. And then I was compiling my favorite comics and shows of the year, and it dawned on me that everybody's doing that. Plus, I did that over at Sci-Fi for a few of their end-of-the-year lists. And I just think people are tired of them. Do you really need another end-of-the-year, this-is-what-you-should-have-seen list? And so I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do, and then this amazing thing happened. I got a chance to interview father, actor, writer, producer, comedian, Orlando Jones, and we had an amazing conversation. Shout out to Tatiana King-Jones, who was a guest earlier this year and was singing his praises and who lit a fire under me to reach out to him back in episode seven. Thank you, girl. You were right. Orlando Jones... (laughs) Orlando is basically the god-uncle I've always wanted. I say god-uncle because I learned so much talking to him, and he's done so much in this business, and he really has a lot of great advice to give. Plus, he talks to you like your family. You'll hear it. (laughs) And of course, he plays a god, a West African god, a Nazi, on the star show American Gods, which is based on Neil Gaiman's book of the same name. Now, I think most people know him as a comedian, actor, and possibly a writer, but he's also a producer. And I found out in this interview that he started his own advertising agency at 18 years old. Remember those 7-Up commercials that made him famous back in the day? Those were also produced and written by him. So he didn't just get acting money from those. He also got writing and producer credit. He was a writer on A Different World, Sinbad, Ben Stiller Show. He co-wrote the pilot for Martin, basically uh, wrote Rock with Charles S. Dutton, and helped launch FX. Yes, the network. Um, We talked about so much, and he even broke down what really happened on Sleepy Hollow and why that show went sideways. And also, he told this really interesting story of what it was like after playing Oliver Tembo in Madiba in BET. He left that set in Africa, got on a plane, flew to LA, and then walked onto a set of a slave ship (laughs) to do his iconic Anansi speech scene in American God season one. So he had so many incredible things to talk about that I was silent for most of this interview. So you know he had to be saying something because y'all know I can talk. For this last episode of 2018, I'm going to change the format a little bit. I'm going to take one break right here. And then the next thing you'll hear, uninterrupted, is my amazing conversation with God Uncle Orlando Jones. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Now, Audible is offering listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership just for listening to the Blur Girl podcast. All you got to do is go to audibletrial.com slash theblurredgirl. That's audibletrial.com slash theblurredgirl and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs that they have to offer. You can download a title for free and just start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash theblurredgirl, T-H-E-B-L-E-R-G-G-U-R-L to get started today. Now, why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. And if you're anything like me, 
you're busy. Audible makes it incredibly easy to catch up on books while I'm commuting, cleaning the house, working out, driving, whatever. It just makes multitasking easy. Now, if I were you, I would totally take advantage of the 30-day free trial and download a book or two that you've been meaning to read. Looking for suggestions? Well, I would definitely check out Shadow Shaper by Daniel Jose Older and the follow-up to that book, Shadow House Falls. Both are incredible fantasy books and they are narrated by actress and singer Anika Noni Rose and she sounds amazing. It's really, really good. I listened to both of those books on an out-of-state road trip and it made the time just fly by. Get started with Audible today. They've got a really simple app to use so you can literally listen from anywhere. Download your free audiobook today at audibletrial.com slash theblurredgirl. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash theblurredgirl for your free audiobook. Where did you grow up and when did you realize that, you know what, this whole acting entertainment thing, I could do this? <laughs> um, you know, I was born in Mobile, Alabama, and uh, you know, my father, is, <laughs> excuse me, a college basketball coach, and uh, my mother worked in entertainment, so I lived in Greenville, South Carolina, Tallahassee, Florida, Orangeburg, South Carolina. And a number of other places around the southeast. Um, and right around, I guess, uh, you know, high school, I met a lady named Gladys Robertson. Took a public speaking class. She um, encouraged me to join the debate team. I did that. Won the state championship. Won the national championship. Had a bunch of drama school offers to Yale and places like that. Couldn't afford to go there. My parents didn't make that type of money, so went down to College of Charleston and really sort of got involved in the uh, just the local uh, commercial industrial film scene in North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. Started an advertising agency when I was 18, started producing ads for Food Lion and South Carolina, um, you know, highways, uh, South Carolina credit unions, um, uh, Sunoco and various. Hey, wait a second, back up, back up, back up. At 18 years old, I didn't know that advertising agencies existed. How did you know how to start one? Um, well, I've been hired as an actor as just a local kid on all these little, you know, local shoots that, that happened in South Carolina or North Carolina or Georgia. And so, you know, I knew what the local production crews were because, you know, you go to the audition for the thing and then you come back and you drive to the call back and then, you know, you get the job and they pay you 20 cent a mile to get there. So after doing that for a while, um, for right around a year, um, there was a company called Kingfisher Productions that had a guy named Brian Elmson and Brian Elmson uh, had gotten a contract with uh, the state of South Carolina uh, to try and talk to young African-American males about AIDS. Mm. Uh, and as an older white guy, he didn't know anything about AIDS, but he had met this black kid on a couple of his shoots, and that was me. So he hired me as a consultant to come in and work with him uh, and just tell him, you know, help him with the language and all that would appeal to a young black male demographic audience like me. So it, look, it was very cool for me because he paid me what I thought was a lot of money. I made $5,000. I was like stupid excited. Yep. And I was sitting in his office about, you know, maybe two months later and I was looking at the board and I was looking at all the ideas I pitched him and I was looking at the dollar amount next to them that he had made. And he had made around eight and a half million dollars 
and I had made $5,000. And at that point I called a family friend who was an attorney and I was like, I thought I made a lot of money at $5,000, but he made 8 million off my ideas. What the hell? And he said, well, here's how the business works and I can incorporate you and you can start go pitching your own ideas. So I took that tape that, uh, those ideas were that I made with him and I started pitching those things to a lot of other advertising agencies. They hired me and that's how I got into the advertising business. Wow. Okay. So is that how you got to do seven up? I mean, was that something that you worked on or did they give that to you? How did that come? Yeah, about? that was my campaign. I wrote that campaign. The way that came about was actually, that was years, years later. Uh, what, what really happened there was that that gave me the ability to go out and pitch my own ideas. And that gave me the ability to um, learn what it was like to be on the business side of that case. And so I sold a bunch of ideas and uh, hired those same local crews that I'd worked with as an actor to come and produce those ideas. And then that led me to getting uh, McDonald's, uh, the Michael Jordan, McJordan special campaign from Leo Burnett, which was a really big deal to do the Michael Jordan campaign. I got Mazda, I got Food Lion off of that. And those ads that I wrote and performed in uh, were the ads that caught the attention of a couple of agents and such. And I got hired uh, to become a writer on a different world. And they flew me out uh, off of... uh, my advertising work, they had me write a spec script. I wrote it. It sucked. They hired me anyway. And so I moved uh, to Los Angeles, California and became a writing, uh, a writer, a staff writer on season, gosh, four, season five of uh, A Different World. And I wrote on that show for a year. That's incredible. And wrote Sinbad off of that show. That was the first produced script I had on television. Oh. Uh, I wrote on that show for uh, another year and uh, wrote another, got another episode that I could write and produce. Learned a tremendous amount for, from everybody there, particularly Susan Fales and Deborah All and all those ladies, uh, Karen Mandebach and Marcy Carsey. Um, and a, a lot of other people, Dudley Bowser and such. Uh, she was a story editor when I was a staff writer there. Gina Prince was from the, uh, there. Reggie Bythewood was from there. Um, so uh, that led me to uh, co-writing the pilot of Martin with a guy named John Bowman mm-hmm. and uh, then working with Judd Apatow on the Ben Stiller show and working with Pete Siegel and Colin Quinn and Mario Joyner on another pilot. Then I landed on a show called Rock. Uh, that was on Fox uh, with Charles Dutton and Rocky Carroll and Ella Joyce and, uh, you know, just a, a wonderful cast. We produced 25 live episodes of television there for a year. Uh, at that point, I was an executive producer, executive story editor. And then I left there and became a producer on the Sinbad show uh, for Fox vis-a-vis Disney. And then I left there after a year of being a writer producer and went to New York and launched a thing called FX. Uh, into 18 million homes, and uh, I did a one-hour live. A little thing called FX, just a little. <laughs> At the time, it was a little thing. It wasn't a big thing. I'll tell you how funny it was. When we, it was Tom Bergeron did the breakfast show. Mm-hmm. Jeff Pro answered viewer mail from Survivor. Wow. Bill Kogan from Amazing Race did the collectibles show. So he went around going through people's antique and junks to talk about what in their junk might be worth something. And I did the music show. Now, we were in New York. We did the show live in, uh, from the FX apartment, 11,000 square foot art apartment on 26th and 5th, right across from Madison Square Park. But we were not on in New York City. 
Now, you know how hilarious it is. You walk around New York City and say, you're on a television show. And people say, oh, really? Go check it out. It's like, no, we can't be on New York City. And that was because Fox and Time Warner were in a battle mm-hmm. at the time that ended up, you know, securing the NFL rights for Fox when they overpaid them. So, you know, I left FX and then went to Mad TV as a writer-performer. Uh, I was the only writer, uh, only writer on the cast at that time. And that was crazy because when you're in the writer's room, all they do is talk shit about the actors. And when you're in the actor's room, all they do is talk shit about the shitty writers. But and then, you can't open your mouth. Because you're in both rooms. <laughs> you're in both rooms. And if you say something, everybody knows where the fuck it came from. Exactly. <laughs> What's also incredible about what you're telling me is the fact that you couldn't get into Yale. And there are kids that probably went that year, graduated, and are still paying off their loans that didn't do what you were able to do. Well, I couldn't afford Yale, you know, and that, you know, and also, you know, I had to go to work. My parents didn't have no money, you know, like that, you know, I mean, we were, you know, we, we, my parents are defined, don't get me wrong. We were, you know, lower middle class living, you know, a life that had a lot, some upper middle class privileges, but we weren't, we weren't well to do, you know what I'm saying? So, mm-hmm. And and for me, it was just going to work. You know, I was trying to get out of the house. So I left the house when I was 17 years old and I I started working. So, you know, the truth of the matter is, you know, I'd already become a writer producer and and launched what people now call reality television before I got to sketch comedy. And then I found myself in the movie business. And, you know, I've I've always loved the, the telling of stories. It's What's exciting for me more than anything is that everybody I meet uh, thinks that they know, know, and knows a different aspect of my career. It just depends on who you're talking to, right? Right. Or, that's what I find. That's what I find fascinating. Yeah, for me, it, it, it's so. I, I really kind of see it as mundane, but I guess it's because it's my own life. But I just think it's because people's perception of 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 actors is one thing, and to be honest, people's perspective of people of color is another thing. And I'm a black dude, so. No one had, I think if I was a white dude, people would be far less impressed. Um, um, I think at the end of the day, and and maybe that's untrue. I I, I don't know. I don't have the right perspective about that. And I realize it. But for me, it's always been about telling stories and doing so. But to value oneself based on, you know, the the television show you acted in is, is, has always been an alien concept to me just because I started off writing for people that were, you know, crazy famous at the time and i now talk to people who don't know who those people are now you know i think that's crazy don't don't get me wrong it's it's amazing to me but i i also think it just speaks to people thinking that their own myopic point of view about what a star is or what's valuable to them is true of everyone and for me it's always about how you connect not with just one group of people but how you can build communications and have relationships with all different types of people. And I've always wanted my career to reflect that. That's why I've tried to use my, my skill as a storyteller, not just as an actor, but as a writer, as a producer, as a stand-up comedian, a, in a drama, in a comedy, in a horror, in advertising, all the same thing, right? 30-second stories, three-minute stories, 20-minute stories, half-hour stories, 72-minute-plus stories, VR stories, Stories are stories, and and stories are the change agents that inspired me to want to do what I do. I'm literally just a fan at the end of the day, but I I don't look at it as if I only do one thing because that's a luxury I've never had. But that's a very black thing. It's not even to have one job. It's about being able to do multiple things because life changes. 
And this and this business is very will change very quick on you. And I feel like I don't think the, I don't think the business changes. I think the business is very straightforward. Really? Actually, I think absolutely. I, I I don't think the problem is the business. I think the problem is the is the incorrect perception of what it is. Ah, okay. So what do you think? the perception of Hollywood and how difficult or crazy it is versus what you do in it every day. Let's strip away all of the silliness and talk about what it actually is because mm -hmm. without that basic conversation, you're lost. Okay. And if you believe the conversation is solely about your incredible idea, then you are misunderstanding what this is. No matter how incredible your idea is, the television business, the old television business, is literally the advertising business. That's what it is. It's job to move the adjusted case volume of product overnight by this massive viewership. That's what it is. That's what the networks are. Cable, a more specialized version of that that has a tacit fee that you pay every month. Mm -hmm. Netflix, Amazon, a tacit fee, Stars, HBO, a tacit fee. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at advertising business and subscription business. Mm -hmm. Those are their very different businesses. Okay. And now there's the movie business and that's the banking business. Half the money makes the movie go. Irrespective of your idea, if you can get half the money, you can make your crappy movie. Mm-hmm. Because fifty percent now taken to a tax incentivized environment gives you seventy-five to eighty percent of your asset, and you can get the last fifteen or twenty, or back yourself into that lower number. But you can do what you need to do if you're a reasonably good producer, because half the money makes the movie go. So, once we understand what we're up against, once we understand what we're who we're focused on, now we can talk about how to attack the business. Now, if what you're doing is going out to Hollywood looking to meet an agent or an executive who you're going to pitch your idea to, who's going to help you move it up the ladder, and you're going to get it made, and it's going to be a huge success, and people are going to throw awards at you and accolades because you're brilliant and you're incredible and you're funny and they're <laughs> going to see you, and it's going to be amazing, but you're going to own nothing. They will own everything. And I am not saying that that is a bad thing. I'm saying that that's the price of the ticket. Okay, but Clint Eastwood did not stay in that position, mm -hmm. nor did George Lucas. They did not stay in that position. They quickly moved out of it. In fact, Lucas moved out of it incredibly quickly and then sold his content back to the machine. Mm -hmm. I believe it's $5 billion yep. for one IP. Now, we can call that the exception and not the rule, but the business case of what he did does make sense. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Spielberg, same thing. He created Amblin. So I'm a kid that was one of the first movies that DreamWorks launched. That because, that's because Steven Spielberg and Jeffrey Katzenberg were guys who took a gamble on me and thought I was talented and took a lot of time when we were flying around on private jets doing press, just talking mm -hmm. and me hearing their phone calls. Now, everybody was there. I don't know what they heard and what I heard, but I heard very clearly what was going on. And they were kind enough to actually engage me in that conversation. And once I understood what the business was, I was like, oh, wow, that's how come y'all got so much money. And my interest in that and my interest in being, you know, Mr. Nancy being a character, my passion about both of those things is equal. It's not like one or the other for me. Mm -hmm. And, and so for me, I, I believe the following. 
you always the price of the ticket is the price of the ticket, as James Baldwin would say. And you have to understand what the price is before you get your ass on that train. Yep. Now, you can get your ass on that train and reach incredible success and not know where the fuck you are, as is so often the case for, for so many people. Because there are so many people around you telling you you're awesome and you're going to be a star and it's going to be incredible. I mean, I'm sure all of that was said to my counterparts, you know, on various shows. Mm -hmm. Some of the ones you mentioned, that now you can't find them. Mm -hmm. And that's not because they aren't incredibly talented. It's because they fundamentally didn't understand what was going on. It's not really about you. They're not really focused on you. You're just the thing in between the commercials. Yeah. No matter what social, no matter how many social media followers you have, that is not, I tell people all the time, like Twitter, Twitter is not paying you. That's right. Okay. And, and if you haven't built a, a, a business around it and, a, and, and built a business around the way the business transacts, like I make money from my social media. I can't speak for other people. Mm-hmm. I know people who have much larger followings than me who don't seem to make any money from their social media. But again, they're not thinking of it in the same way that I am. It's a, different, it's a different perception and it's a different perspective because I'm like, you want to buy advertising? You want to buy advertising. Mm-hmm. What's the influencer? I'm an influencer because of my high engagement. My, I'm not an influencer because of my high numbers. Mm-hmm. People have far bigger numbers. They just don't have my engagement. When I look at you online, your personality online, I feel I see you. And I feel we're getting your voice because you can kind of always tell when it's somebody else running somebody else's account, your connection to your fans. And I, and I actually did not realize how good you were at this until Sleepy Hollow, how you even knew the fan fiction that the, your fans are writing about you. I was like, this is phenomenal. I'm usually explaining fan fiction to people. How did you learn how to do that? How, how are you able to still run a business from up here, but still be down here in the, in, in the passenger car with the rest of us? How, how, how do you develop that, that dichotomy of vision, I guess I'll call it? Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's a real, for me, I don't know that I think it's a secret sauce. I, I think that, that, you know, as a little black kid from fucking the South, I, I you know, I, people looked through me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, motherfuckers didn't think I was going mount to nothing about nothing. So it didn't matter how they treated me. So when you see life, from that particular lens and, and you like anybody else, you know what I mean? Uh, escapism, entertainment, Hollywood. I was excited. You know what I mean? Uh, Eddie Murphy's hilarious. I'm laughing. You know what I mean? I was a fan mm-hmm. of all of these different things of, you know, of comic books, of, of chemistry, of, of, of science, of math, of coding, of, 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 of black culture, of Latin. Co- I'm just, I was a fan. Mm-hmm. You know, So of all of these things, all of these, you know, Univista Social Club, the Shaka Khan, (laughs) the Pesh Mode, I I could go all day long, Mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? You know, uh, Maria Callas, I mean, but a a genuine fan of all of these different types of of, of artists. So my point is, but where did I belong as a black boy? They told me that wasn't who I was supposed to be. Hell, when I got to Hollywood, it was all boys in the hood and menace to society. And if you weren't the most hoodiest dude, you know, with, with tats and a blunt in your mouth, who were you? I mean, mm-hmm. you, you weren't nobody. So, so my point is, is that it, 
I've always been here doing the same damn thing, right? Because that's what I love. Mm-hmm. That's what I enjoy. That's fun to me. And it didn't, it didn't take me away from that, but it just meant that people had a certain perception they had developed of me mm-hmm. because of characters that I had played. They didn't even know me. Right. So very early on, I realized that people ain't talking to me at all. They're talking to some character I played 10 years ago, five years ago, a year ago. And I'm like, that's hilarious to me. That guy doesn't walk like me. He don't talk like me. He don't think like me. That is a character. But they don't think uh, enough of They don't think of me as a thespian in that way. Right. They're not so separating the human being from the character. That's correct. So now imagine, you know, I'm talking to one person about Mad TV, another person about Double Take, another person about Biker Boys, another about Evolution, Time Machine, Sleepy Hollow, uh, American Gods, uh, Madiba. Um, you know, when I'm in South Africa, they're talking about Oliver Tambo. They're not talking about any of this foolishness. Yeah. Because that's Africa. In right. Nigeria, they're like, Oliver Tambo, oh, Ghana, Oliver Tambo. You know, they're not even thinking about what we're thinking about here. Yeah. It's, you know what I mean? It's a completely, so my point is, you know, in Black Biker Club, certainly ain't thinking about none of that other madness. The replacement is a football movie. I mean, the NFL crew every year, there's a thousand tweets of, Somebody does one of my end zone dances. Uh, Clifford Franklin can't catch the ball. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is a constant, constant drumline in the HBCU community. Yes, I was going to say drumline next. Yes. About it. So my point is, these are different demos, different segments that people say don't connect. But I have a genuine connection to all of them. So to answer your question, that means I'm checking out what... 12-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old black kids is talking about. Mm-hmm. Because of Drumline, because of Wildin' Out. Hell, I did the first episode for Nick, so I, I naturally fit there for me in the same way that I, I love motorcycles. So what's mm-hmm. going on with black biker clubs versus biker gangs? I'm mm-hmm. checking that out too. So in, in being in fandom and being online, that was the only way I could get to a lot of these places because I spend my time off doing something. So where I'm playing another character. And when I decided to just sort of escape, my escape was to go be Trollando online. And that meant that Trollando could go all of these different places and just dig into the chat rooms and find stuff and laugh and giggle and really sort of connect with an audience. And that's really where it came from. But it, it came from being just a nerdy. Trollando's brilliant. Exactly, <laughs> Trollando, you know? Right. So that the answer to your question, that's how I got there. Oh, 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 oh. And I and I credit two women okay. in particular for putting me there more than anybody else. Okay, who? Nicole Bahari and Lindy Greenwood. Really? Yes, because Wow. I, I credit them because when it came to Sleepy Hollow, those ladies those ladies in particular represented something that that I was surprised by. We were in a science fiction project. There was a black female in the lead. Mm-hmm. Though she was beautiful, she wasn't a bimbo. Her sexuality wasn't being paraded out in front of her being a cop. Nope. And she didn't have to sleep with anybody. She, she didn't sleep with nobody. Nope. She led him around and her sister could have gave two fucks about any of that bullshit and they were witnesses in the Bible. That was my show. When you left, I'm like, this is the beginning of the end, y'all. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and I'm exactly right. Yeah. Like if Sleepy Hollow wasn't the only show on, right, you know, on, on at that time with 
black women leads in that you know that's exactly right that's exactly right so so let me so so let's talk for one second about what went wrong so and i'll make my point to you Mm -hmm. where the show got less interesting is when they started trying to tell the story of the family of ichabod crane yeah nobody cared we didn't care okay exactly right (laughs) but what was exciting about that show was you had that happening with the witnesses you had john cho in a relationship that was he loved her, had all, you know, but they, they had a tricky relationship. You had Mick Gonzalez, mm-hmm. who was on the other side of it, trying to, you know, in the tension of him trying to deal with his attraction to her. So again, the boys chasing her, not her chasing the boys. Mm-hmm. And, and lastly, and this is the craziest part, then you had the entire Irving family with the centerpiece of that family being Amanda Stenberg playing my daughter mm-hmm. who was handicapped, right. but in no way defined by her handicap. No, that was the success of sleepy hollow. And everybody knew that except the people who were in charge. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't on purpose. They weren't trying to be malicious and they certainly weren't trying to be racist. That's not true of those people. I've known many of these people for 15, 20 years. I've not accused them of such. That's not true of them. No, it felt like they just didn't read the room. Well, it's not even the ability to read the room. It's if I am them and I bought the Sleepy Hollow franchise, the Sleepy Hollow lead is Ichabod Crane. That's what I bought. Mm -hmm. I bought that Washington Irving tale. So it makes perfect sense that I would focus on who I'm going to cast as Ichabod Crane. And I'd be thinking about that show through that lens. And if I'm casting a British actor in this type of show, I'm doing Supernatural House. You know what? I'm mad at you. You just broke my brain with that. Okay. (laughs) Because that's the network's previous success. And that's what that next network would model after. So here we are doing a British actor on an American television show. So it makes sense that I would follow the path and the storyline of the house character Ichabod Crane. It does not mean that I'm tone deaf because my job as an executive who would green light and put the expenditures towards that is not to look at what's happening in social media and all of that madness. But if you were just a fan who was understanding what other fans are responding to and also understanding that I was raised by a group of black women. So I'm watching my mama, my grandmama, my cousin, my aunties. These women ain't watched the same shit in forever. Okay. <laughs> They ain't even sit on the same couch at the same time. <laughs> right? You couldn't get this crew in the same goddamn room to watch some bullshit if your life depended on it. And they are gathered around the television, a cackling and a giggling, or they are separately, and some of them are online and the older ones, but it is a full-on conversation mm-hmm. on Sunday. Yep. Because it... It's the Bible and it's people of color, it's women. And it's, this is more people of color than anyone had ever seen on a network television show. They did not realize what was going to be so popular, but what they came and what they paid for, they wanted to get returns on. You know, you, you tend to, I tend to follow the numbers. So as somebody who was sitting inside of that show, and I w- it was clear to me that what was happening wasn't malicious, but it was mm-hmm. also clear to me that it was highly personality driven. Mm-hmm. And it was also very clear to me that the focus was elsewhere, but that wasn't new. It wasn't like it shifted. The focus was never on that thing. Yeah. That thing just 
kind of happened because the focus wasn't there and it, it happened organically, but it wasn't really planned. It was a, it was a lucky mistake in many ways. Yes. And, and, and that was, that was beautiful about it, right? Yeah. It was, it was so that's meaningful. Right, that's right. And they, but they just weren't prepared. That's right. They weren't prepared for it. Yeah. Okay. That was the power of that show before there was a diversity movement. The metric was there. The success was there. Yet look at how difficult it is to continue to do that because each time they do it, it's, it's in a disingenuous and inauthentic way. That is a broken element between what digital has done, what, uh, how younger people view content not normally on television or in a movie, but on their phone or yeah. on a pad or on yeah. a gaming device or on their computer. It's a, you know, the television is the fifth most popular portal by which to look at content. So uh, the movie screen, the sixth. So television is basically the radio of when I was a kid. It, it is in some ways, right? Except, when, except, except for the election. You're it, right. Unless it's, unless it's the Grammys, the Emmys or an election. And hold on. And the Grammys and the Emmys are not bigger than the BET Awards. Oh, God. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> okay. So think about how large a shift that is even in culture and viewing and relevance, when you think about how the Oscars themselves don't have the same relevance they once did, and that, you know, if you go see something fire, you know what I mean? You don't even look to the same place anymore. But, but for me, being able to, because I hadn't done a comedy in so many years, because, you know, they don't really do character-driven comedies anymore, and I mm -hmm. prefer that to being... When I do a straight up comedy, then I'm a buffoon. Yeah. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, you know, because, you know, it's not possible, you know, you know, it's, it, I will never forget when the, the late, great and, and, and tremendous, wonderful man, Bernie Mac, uh, uh, you know, was being called, like I have been called, you know, bug eyed, cooning. And you're like, uh, I, I apologize that God gave me this face and these eyes. I'm sorry that that, that that's so offensive to you, that I, mm -hmm. <laughs> that me playing frightened in a character that's supposed to be comedic would be seen as somehow a betrayal of my race. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I, I am sorry that the British actors are able to come here and talk in an American accent. And then when they speak in a British accent, you're like, Oh my God, look at that. They're not even using their real voice. That's amazing. But here I am from the deep South. My family sound like two chain and Lil Wayne. And, um, <laughs> But yeah, but that vernacular, yeah, family. that vernacular is not even acknowledged as a le legitimate patch patch. They don't even acknowledge that it exists. Yeah. So that's where I came from. That's my natural tone. Now help me understand how the fuck I'm gonna play Frank Irving or anybody mm -hmm. talking like that. Please tell me how the fuck that serves me as an actor. What that does is it fucks me as a black man. It limits me, and it further allows people to make. Uh, judgments and diminishing what the fuck I am trying to do as an artist. So there was no reason for me to go down that road, but the choice not to talk like that and to choose this voice that I talk in most of the time that is supposed to be frankly generic because I can't afford that. Yeah. Hold on. Not to get the opportunities that I want to get and not to do the type of roles that I want to do. And as an actor, you don't need to know what I really sound like. You need, I need a generic talking tone and then the character, which is why Mr. Nancy don't sound nothing like me. But none of them do.
My characters don't sound like me. They don't move like me. But that's that, again. But I'm an actor. I'm mm-hmm. that, I'm a that's I'm an actor. That's what I do. Yeah, the, to be a chameleon is part of your part of your existence. But also, is it is it also a form of protection? We shouldn't see the real you because you got to keep that to yourself someplace, don't you? No, not at all. You don't think so? Yeah. Okay. Well, I can only tell you where it came from for me. I can't make judgments about what it is to other people. I can't make judgments about, you know, what it is to other people. Mm -hmm. For me, this is what it is. So I was cutting class one day in college. Um, After doing the debate, um, I then took a a public speaking class in college because I knew that was an easy A. Um, But I used to cut the class all the time. And the teacher knew that I had just won the national championship. So she caught me cutting her class and made me come to her class one day because she had a producer there that she wanted me to perform for. Um, I came to perform because she threatened to fail me if I didn't, but I didn't have anything prepared. And I made up this story about this kid who was my next door neighbor. And uh, we used to play together and there was a creek in our backyard and I found him floating dead in the creek face down. And the hardest thing I'd ever had to do was to go tell my friend's mom that her son was dead and the room is in tears. And then I asked the audience, is the story I told true or not? And that got me a two hour sit down with a producer named Paul Aaron. Wow. Paul Aaron said the following things. He said, you're an incredibly talented young man, but let me tell you what your problem is going to be. There is a different, there's a difference between a personality and an actor. They're two different things. Alfred Woodard, is an actor, that's an actress, she mm-hmm. becomes something else. Will Smith, Eddie Murphy are personalities. Ah. There's, it's much easier to sell a personality than it is to sell an actor because with a personality, you know what it is. Mm-hmm. For an actor, it's always something different so you don't know what it is. It's a different brand every time. So, It's always going to be easier to sell a personality. It's always going to be easier to sell a comedian. Your problem is that you're very funny just as you. So you're going to have to decide, do you want to be a personality or do you want to be an actor? Because you can't be both. So he told me that when I was 18 years old. And at that fucking moment, I can promise you... (laughs) Where everything I know from Jesus, <laughs> Jacob, and four more niggers with J name, <laughs> that I decided that he was not going to tell me who the fuck I could and could, could not, not be. be. Good for you. And I didn't know who this white man was or where <laughs> he came from. And I knew he was trying to help me. I knew that. And I knew he meant no disrespect. I knew that. And I knew he was giving me real knowledge. I knew that. And I was fucking grateful. I truly was fucking grateful. And he dropped $30 on breakfast. And I was like, this fool is balling. $25 for parking. Mm -hmm. Shit. (laughs) So my point is, is that that man became a mentor to me. His name was Paul Aaron. When I've made big decisions in my career, he's someone I've gone back to and whose advice I've asked over the years. And I guess I say all that to say it was that fundamental understanding that marked my choices. 
and where everybody else thought it was just madness. I'm like, look, I don't have the luxury. I didn't spend 25 years in a comedy club. I didn't spend 15 years in a comedy club. Yet I was competing against guys who had spent their lives in comedy club. And none of them particularly liked it because they were like, who the fuck is this motherfucker? Mm-hmm. So they all thought that, you know, I was like the, the black guy, the white guy is liked. And mm-hmm. that was their perception because in their mind, they couldn't possibly understand how I could have gotten here not being in a comedy club. Right. Right. So that that's that's how my perception came from. But when people see me and when they saw me and when most people do, if you're thinking of me through the comedy shit that I did during the early 90s, it's a completely different planet than the drama stuff I've done for the last 10 years. And and for, you know, a lot of the people who I look up to and who are who've been kind to me and who I've met and had an opportunity to spend time with over the years, you know, you know, for someone like Denzel, it's a very different career. But when I look for someone like Lawrence Fishburne, who's been a very a mentor to me my entire life, and 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 somebody who I, I just hold in the most in the highest regard, um, you know, he's been able to to do something that I think is truly genuinely extraordinary. And I, I think the way he is underrated is is just it's, to me, it's just it's it's abysmal. Uh, yeah. and, and he doesn't. He doesn't care about any of that. Okay. That's just not who he is as a human being. That's not, but because he has been such a mentor to me and because he has been gone out of his way on so many occasions and I've had the opportunity to work with him and, you know, obviously in fences and, mm-hmm. and then in Medibo when he was, you know, when he was playing Nelson Mandela, I mean, he's just been a tremendous force in my life and I'm so grateful for him. We are very, but I'm also so grateful for, for him because a lot of mentors try and shape you in their light. Mm-hmm. And he didn't do that. He really encouraged me to shape myself in my own light and to understand the, the consequences that they may or may not come with, but to be comfortable with the fact that I was going to drive that train. And for me, that was, that's a lesson I wasn't expecting. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Mm-hmm. What, did, what did he and think the- of your work on American Gods? What did he think of Mr. Nancy? Because it sounds like his opinion is one that you really revere. Well, I'm a, I'm a Neil Gaiman fan, but, you know, I became a Neil Gaiman fan in the stupid way that life takes your places. You know, a Nazi was a character. My, my, you know, my, my grandparents, my great grandparents used to read to me when I was mm-hmm. a little boy. You too. Like I said, my mother's from the islands. There was always, there was always something. There was always a duppy man and a Nazi story, uh, something to keep us kids in line. And those fables I grew up with, even, you know, Aesop, you know, all yep, of them. Aesop too. Exactly. What did it feel like to you when you when you knew you got that role? Would you did you tell him like, listen, I'm gonna I'm write some stuff for this? No, um, I, I, no. I th- what what really happened was I was in Africa at the time. I was in the middle of making uh, Madiba. Um, I, you know, was sort of deep into playing Oliver Tambo at that at that time, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, this popped up and because I grew up on a Nazi, I had read a Nazi boys and then I found American gods and was obviously a fan of, of, uh, of that. And so I literally got a phone call from Margie Simpkin, a casting director I've known for many, many years. And she essentially said to me, Hey, let me tell you about this project. But I had already been online tweeting Neil Gaiman when they said it, they were going to do it, going, I should be Mr. Nancy. <laughs> 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 I 
And so Neil Gaiman liked and favorited the tweet. And I was like, what is going on right now? This cannot be real, right? This cannot be real. That's awesome. So then I get a phone call from the casting director, and she knows nothing about any of this. (laughs) She's like, look, I think you're right for this role. I think you would bring something special to it. Um, I want you to talk to Brian Fuller and Michael Green, who are fans of yours as well. I know you and Brian have worked together before. And I literally got on with those guys, and we talked about what they saw and I talked about wow, what my connection was and what I was passionate about. And they said, okay, cool. And, and then I got the script and showed up on set. There you go. And I flew in from Africa and, uh, honestly, the thing that was at the time was black Lives matter. was like on fire and it was on the front page of the paper. And they were just talking about, you know, conditions here and how, you know, though there's this image of tolerance in Canada, uh, that that's not exactly true. And they were pointing to themselves and First Nations. And, mm-hmm. and I walk onto set and here's a simulated slave ship with about 50 black dudes uh, naked in chains. Mm-hmm. And did I'm that, like... Did that, did that image really hit you hard when you... To, to, talk, to see it on script is one thing, but to walk in and see it. What's the, I mean, the character already knew all of that. So none of that was mm-hmm. new information. And I'd already read the scene, so I knew I was going to walk into that set, right? So, mm-hmm. yes, I know it's going to be something like this. Yes, yes, yes. I'm going to settle into the scene because it's not about that, really, at the end of the day. That scene is really about the fact that what Anansi knows more than anything else is that he knows where these people are headed. But Anansi needs them as a god to sacrifice themselves to him. Mm-hmm. And he cannot get the attention of a bunch of people in despair by selling them despair. They're already there. Yeah. You have to take them elsewhere. Take them on a journey, a trip, and then bring them back to their present conditions in the state of mind that inspires them to create the change that they desire and to give him what he desires, mm-hmm. which may or may not be the change, but absolutely the sacrifice. Yeah. So for me, it's like a reverend who doesn't believe, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Might be able to convince you of anything by virtue of their showmanship, but that's not the life they lead. That's mm-hmm. not what they care about, but they transact in that way. And I'm not saying that I believe that Nazi is necessarily a charlatan. I'm saying that he's a God and whatever your human thoughts or desires are about him are unimportant generally, because you're a human and he's a God. And even in the storyline of the show, you know, it's, it's the gods are war. That's right. So he, to stay alive, he's going to need that sacrifice. That's correct. And his worshipers are people of color. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me, the ability to play that type of character and really where I wanted to take this part of my career and it's where I've really been focused. And, you know, I, I think I've been blessed to really do a lot of things, but I think what I'm most focused on right now is playing characters that are not just American, but that are also um, African and Brazilian and Cubano. I really am focused on playing characters that speak to the all of the different people who are in my skin tone who come and, and the culture that they come from, because, you know, until those 
those young men get the opportunities that I'm able to get, mm-hmm. they're not going to be able to, to do this. And as an actor, it's something that I desire to do, but it also is a community that I've spent my life going and moving in and out of. And I, you know, I have a connection to that, but I really am connected on Oliver Tambo was a hero to me as a African man, mm-hmm. you know, the tradition of his people is a powerful one that, that, you know, people certainly know about because both he and um, uh, Mandela were both uh, Kosa. Mm-hmm. And for me playing those characters that talk about that American experience and that African experience in terms of ways that empower and uplift and transform is really kind of what I'm most excited about. You know, I, you know, I, I'm just, I don't want to do cops and yeah. that silly. I mean, yeah. and, and I mean, I just, I, it doesn't, it doesn't speak to me the same way. Um, it's fine. It's doable, but it, it just doesn't, it doesn't really speak to me unless there's just something else behind it. And so I'm focused there. And that's also why I was so focused on something like a Nazi. So Season two, American Gods, is going to be complete fire for a lot of different reasons. There's way more Nazi than there was in season one. That's for sure. But that's I think- what we need. And we need some more of those speeches. And we, because honestly, this <laughs> this year, we needed some Nazi. Because what do you say? Anger gets shit done. We needed... Anger gets shit done. We need in 2018, and it feels like the longest year ever, right? Like, I, sometimes I forget that Black Panther premiered at the beginning of this year. Because I feel like we went from King of Wakanda to Children in Cages. So it's like we did. By the way, we kind we kind of did, right? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Hold on, and here's the crazy part: lots of discussion, but little fanfare. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. people just kind of moving along like this shit. Business as usual in this motherfucker. Right. Um, and, and some days it was sort of like, uh, am I the only person seeing this? Like, wait. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but in terms of you looking back on some of the most profound things that have happened this year, it can be news, movies, comics, books, senators, anything. Um. What do you think, coming out of 2018, going into 2019, for, for yourself, what are some of the most profound things that, that affected you this year? And what are you looking to affect in 2019? I don't know. I would say 2019 is um, going to be an interesting year. Um, I don't think that we are in a situation where anything new is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, this was my great-grandmother's America. This was my grandmother's America, my grandfather's, my my father's, and now mine. So I'm not really sure where the surprise is coming from. Mm-hmm. That, that seems to be true. And, I guess people, um, who don't, people who don't know history, you think? I don't know. I, I don't think it's that. Maybe they don't know history, but, you know, there's a difference between history and lived history. That's true. Um, there's a difference between the intellectual understanding of something and the actual understanding of having been through that experience. And they're very different things. Mm-hmm. So I, I really feel like I, you know, I'm, I'm a father of two little girls who um, are the unequivocal lights of my life. Um, and I, um, I do not ever, 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 want them to be subservient to any man under any circumstances whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even necessarily, I don't want them to get married. I don't, I, you know, I want them to, to experience love and, but I, I never want them to have to rely on anyone else to take care of them. Um, 
and and I think that that's a trap mm-hmm. that so many women find themselves in, that they are reliant, that they have to kowtow, that they have to accept conditions that they would not otherwise accept in order to survive. And I don't want my daughters to be in that position. You just really don't want to go to jail. <laughs> because if somebody harms one of those children or one of those girls comes back to you and says she wasn't treated right, Orlando's going to jail. And we don't want to see that. Look here. First of all, I don't know what you're talking about. I would never make such a threat, okay? All I would do, that, that is just heinous. What I would do is I would go get <clears throat> myself a bullet. And then I would toss it over and say, catch this. And I don't care if I'm tossing that bullet to a man or a woman. I don't care. Just, just catch this. And as soon as they catch it, and they look at it and go, uh, Mr. Jones, uh, why did you just throw me a bullet? And I'd say, because if you do something to my daughter, I guarantee you, you won't catch the next one, motherfucker. I promise you that. My hands are Jesus. My hands are Jesus. Hallelujah. Um, oh, shout out to Tyler Perry. So I guess my point is, <laughs> that's my joke about it. But the truth of the matter is, my daughters are not prey for you motherfuckers. You're the prey. They're the assassins. So I'm not... I'm not trying to build them to be subservient to anything. They're the assassins. You're the prey. Now that we're clear, the assassins have infrastructure because the assassins live a fully realized life wherein they are not diminished by their sex or their color. And the truth of the matter is the world diminishes them by their sex and their color. Mm-hmm. And that's the reality of it. So for me, my passion about the subject is really simple. I am the product of black women. The male determines the sex in the child. And I was blessed with two black women. Whose side am I on? Black women. Who am I fighting for? Black women. Who will I die for? Black women. It's very simple. It's not in any way complex. So for me, who am I going to be vocal about? Black women. And the weirdness of it is to find myself in a situation Well, that's always been who I am. That's always been how I've behaved. Mm -hmm. But people thought that meant I didn't have the capacity to fall in love with the white woman. It didn't mean that at all. Or to fall out of love with the white woman. Whatever it is, love is love. That's some other mercurial madness based on circumstances and a lot of other things that are way beyond my pay grade. But, you know, where is my soul? Where did I come from? What am I the product of? Who has fought the hardest for me? Who has made me the human being that I am? My mother and my father have been married for 50 years. I love them both with all of my heart. I don't know nothing else, right? I, I was mm-hmm. blessed in that way. But, but trust and believe. If you want to get my attention, bring your ass over here fucking around with one of these black girls. You meet me real quick. <laughs> and, and, I, and, I, and I make that clear on social media because I really think it's strange that black men don't do that, right? I think that's some strange ass shit. What I'm gonna holler about LeBron James all fucking day long? And listen, I love LeBron James, man. Wow, what a great brother. So awesome, yes. But I'm gonna just yell about that. I can't yell about Stacey Abrams too. Fuck y'all, that's bullshit. But we need more yelling. We need more Trollando. We need. I think what's brilliant we need about more doing. We do. That's what I was gonna say. Doing. We need more anger so we can get to get some more shit done. Look, I, I think voting is an extraordinarily important thing. I also think Hold the people accountable. allocating your dollars towards things that support the things in your community is a real important mm-hmm. thing. But if we expect that the government is going to change unless we actively vote these people out, 
and make the also local government. That's where the real deal is. I mean, at the end of the day, you control your community, you control the city, you control the state, and if you control the state. You control the people who are making money in the state, which means you can get your hands on the budget, which means you can help the people who are most in need. And we know who those are, young women of color. That's who's the most in need. Mm-hmm. Not complicated. Followed only by young men of color. So why don't we just start there and work our way through the, the, all the issues that we have to work through. But as long as we automatically say this person is worth less simply because of their skin tone and or their gender, and that's the starting point for all conversations, then we're never really having a conversation because you bullshit me just to pay me less. And truthfully, that's the arrangement of over 90% of the people who will hear this podcast. Yeah. So they can cut the You're bullshit. Right. They don't give a fuck. It's on. Thank you so much. I'm a fan. I'm so happy we were able to talk about all the different things that you've done and the, and and how long you've been doing it. And I know it's it comes easy and is breathing and is natural to you. For the rest of us who are not gods and do not play them on television, um, <laughs> I can definitely see people taking things from this conversation, learning from them, and growing from it. So thank you again for letting me be that vehicle because you are a fantastic person. Thank you so much. You are super kind, my love, but honestly, I ain't really all that, you know what I'm saying? Alabama, South Carolina, <laughs> represent Alabama. <laughs> wow. I hope y'all took notes. If you didn't go back and play this again so you can catch some of those gems that Orlando was dropping, especially about business, start your new year off right, especially if you're an influencer and make some decisions that will benefit your work. I hope something, like I said, in this interview helps you. It helped me. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for hanging out with me in 2018. In 2019, I'm gonna be bringing you more content, more podcasts, more videos, more interviews. So please subscribe and leave a comment. You know, you can always find me on social, on Instagram and Twitter, also on Facebook, but I'm not talking to people there so much because Facebook's kind of scary at this point, but you can always find me, The Blur Girl, T-H-E-B-L-E-R-D-G-U-R-L, everywhere. And this podcast is now available on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and I'm working on getting her onto Spotify. So pray for me, y'all. And please don't forget to check out my podcast sponsor, Audible, and start your free Audible trial at audibletrial.com slash theblurgirl. Happy New Year, and let's make 2019 our healthiest and most successful year ever.